Welcome to GrammyCast, the podcast for empty nesters with larger-than-life ambitions. I'm Linda Kennedy, your host. I'm studying journalism at Harvard, but most importantly, I'm a grandmother. So join me as we explore how to inspire the next generation. Hello, Grammys and everyone. Welcome to GrammyCast with Linda. Anybody who's ever taught or volunteered in a classroom pre-pandemic knows that managing groups of kids is a feat on the best of days. That's why I'm focused on back to school right now, especially in Utah, where before the pandemic, the state was known as a hot spot for overcrowded classrooms. More kids have been packed into classrooms there than anywhere in the country next to California and Nevada. So why isn't the decision there for educational and government authorities more simple? I mean, overcrowded classrooms and COVID-19, do I really need to say it? And how can Utah's teachers and families sort through the fears and choices they have? I'm fleshing all this out over a two-part series with Janice Pompa, a professor at the University of Utah Educational Psychology Department. She has those answers. Welcome, Janice. Hi. Thank you for being here today. First, there is so much conflicting information out there about COVID-19, nationally and locally, and so many officials seem to be contradicting themselves. How do parents and families mentally weed their way through all of the information out there to make the best decision about whether to send their children back to school this fall or not? Well, I think that parents have to seek out for themselves the most reliable information possible. There are two reasons why there is a lot of conflicting information going around about the coronavirus. For number one, it's the novel coronavirus, so nothing was known about it before it uh, invaded China and the United States. And the other is that there's a political agenda about skewing uh, the United States response to the coronavirus in a positive direction, which affects what administration officials are allowed to say. And so you will see them at times say one thing and then turn around and say another, presumably after political pressure from the administration. So even though this is quite a burden for parents, I believe it's the only way they're ever going to get reliable information is by seeking it out from the media and original sources to decide what's really going on. Well, yeah, and speaking of original sources, you have Dr. Deborah Burks, who is on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, uh, and you have Dr. Fauci, who has essentially come across as, as really a, a, the authority of COVID-19 at this time, and you know, you, last week you have Deborah Burks saying people are not um, being conservative enough with the guidelines. They're still gathering and, and the virus is out of control because people are, 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 not, um, are not being taking this seriously, being more careful. And then you have Dr. Fauci just yesterday or the day before saying, you know what, it is time to reopen schools and kids should go back to school and colleges, camp, college campuses should reopen. So when you have authoritative when you have authoritative uh, contradictions or seemingly con you know, contradictive like that, 
how do uh, how do people mentally sort that out? And is it creating more fear? Well, people cope with that kind of cognitive dissonance in several ways. I mean, one of them is to be even more afraid because now they don't know what to trust and what position to take and whether to send their children back to school or not and whether it's safe. And the other and the one that I'm seeing much more frequently that's more alarming to me is they just discount everything and say, we don't know anything about it, so we're just gonna go ahead and go on with our lives and socialize because we are human beings and that's what people do. Yeah, and so is that, I mean, are those extremes fear related? What is the psychological, I was gonna ask about that, you know, fear and authority. It seems like, why do, why do people totally disregard authority there in situations like that, you have epidemiologists who are saying, this is really dangerous. And, and people, like you say, who are just saying, oh, well, we're human beings, right? You know, this is, this is nonsense. Where does that come from? And, and, and what's the, the psychological explanation for that? Well, I think that comes from at least two places. Um, one of them is when people in authority disseminate information and then they turn on a dime and say the exact opposite the next day, then people get the impression that the authorities don't know what they're talking about. And that's very scary when you feel like you're not getting reliable information on a life or death illness so that they become more afraid number one. And number two, other people decide that, well, they're going to have to be their own authority, and this is what they believe, and this is what they want to believe, and from there, many of them will proceed to go to different news sources to pick and choose and basically cherry pick the point of view that supports what they want to believe. So is that a, like a survival mechanism? Um, I guess you could put it that way. I mean, survival in the sense of I need to pick a point of view and act on that and so that this is what I'm going to do. Okay. So the contradictions with authorities and experts, epidemiologists, um, uh, the Deborah Burks, the Dr. Fauci's, the governors and things, that is in a sense, would you say in a sense, that that's creating some of the dysfunction and the fears is the lack of alignment with these things? Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's why our country has not taken an effective stance on this matter because there is no leadership that is basically disseminating the same information and saying this is the path we need to take. Because when the science contradicts the politics, then the politics tend to override what the science is saying because people believe the politicians they want to believe and they most of us as human beings don't want to believe that there's this horrible new virus that we don't know anything about that's threatening to kill us and so we will tend to have cognitive dissonance over that. Could you explain more about what cognitive dissonance is? Cognitive dissonance is basically a conflict in your thinking okay let's say you have three kids and you need to go back to work and the, the science is saying that it's not really feasible to open the schools you know 
willy-nilly to go back to school the way that they had before, but you have got to go back to work, you might choose to say, uh, these two don't fit, I have to go back to work, but there's this, this really serious illness going around. I choose to believe that it's not that bad. So I'm gonna go ahead and go back to work and I'm gonna send my kids to school. So you resolve the cognitive dissonance in one way or another, or you say, I'm definitely not sending my kids back to school, I'm gonna to have to quit my job, or I'm gonna to have to make other arrangements because I believe the science and not the politics. So you, you, reserve, you, have, to, you have to resolve it one way or the other. And again, can we go back to how can parents, families, grandparents, the whole support network align together? I mean, because then it breaks down to families. You know, you might have a, a husband saying, I don't want our kids to go back to school. The wife's cognitive dis dissonance or resolve might be different. Um, you know, how, how do they, and, w and with the authority, you know, the, the just differences with authorities, how do they sort through it with, you know, finding the actual reliable information when there's so many contradictions? And I may have already asked that question, but, you know, what would be those steps to avoid making those decisions on your own cognitive distance. <laughs> that makes well, sense. I'm a university professor, so I trust the science. And I realize this is asking a lot of the general population and it, you know, it is, but there's no other way to do it. You've got to get on the internet and look at the science and what the science says and then make your decision. I mean, right now, a lot of the research is focusing on what ages are most likely tra to transmit the coronavirus. And so I think the thing the public is focused on is younger children do not seem to get sick or transmit the coronavirus. So some people would believe it's okay to send kids back to especially elementary school because there was a study in South Korea that indicates that the older you are, the more likely you are to transmit the coronavirus. But I just read something yesterday that contradicted that. And then I read that the uh, at that camp in Georgia that had many um, preventive measures in place, hand sanitizing, masks, the whole nine yards, they had something like 562 of their campers test positive for the coronavirus, which was a prevalence of about, I don't know, 72% or some very, very high number. So things are going back and forth. People don't know what to trust because new findings are coming out every day, but you've got to follow the news and you've got to follow the science and then you have to make a decision on your own. So could we say that since nothing has been known about this virus and it's at a gradual, uh, the, the, the knowledge about it is gradually evolving as well and the science is evolving and that's changing too. Could we blame some of it on the fact that the virus is so new and there hasn't been, you know, that when this broke out, there wasn't a total package that said, well, this is the coronavirus and this is who it affects and this is what happens. And it, it's not like, uh, you know, other, other uh, viruses and things that have been completely studied and, and known so well. Um, I mean, it, is that fair that maybe the, just the very nature of the virus has contributed to some of the conflicts and having to weed through that and contributed to the cognitive dissonance there. 
Definitely, because people don't like cognitive dissonance. They don't like having conflicting ideas and conflicting information. That is, it, ca it causes a real uneasiness for people from a psychological point of view. And so they will then, some, some people anyway, will jump to premature closure and say, okay, this is what I'm gonna believe. And it may or may not be in keeping with the science and the science changes from day to day. So you also have to be somewhat cognitively flexible, but, but people tend to see that as, oh, um, this is fake news because I heard something different yesterday. So I'm just gonna believe this. Okay, so we're asking a lot of um, cognitively of the general population and also psychologically, you know, the, the idea that things are developing, so I need to be flexible, but yet I have to make decisions right now on things we don't know everything about. So how am I going to do that? Would you say that there's not going to be a perfect decision then because of, of what you just said? There will be no perfect decision because there are so many stakeholders in this question with so many different agendas and needs. For example, it is, I mean, from a safety point of view, it would definitely be best to have all online instruction for probably the next year, at least. Okay, that will expose the fewest students and teachers to coronavirus and prevent death, for sure, okay? What about the parents who have to work and support their families? That is not gonna meet their agenda. What about the fact that kids may not be learning as much online and may be falling behind academically? That is also not gonna meet the kids' needs in that way. What about the fact that kids are not socializing the way that they want to and need to? What's the effect of that on their mental health? So there are many conflicting agendas, so there's not gonna be one perfect solution. If, the, if there was, I think that the greatest minds would have already figured that out, but there isn't. I think it is going to be a family-to-family -family decision and that there is dissension within families and that probably the strongest voice is going to prevail because somebody has to make a decision. But like I said, I think the most logical way to make a decision is to follow the science and go with that. But I know that families have different needs and there are some people who are gonna make decisions they don't really want to make and they do not have confidence in because they have to survive and they have to work and make money. And I, I understand that. And then that would be a situation where if it were possible for all schools to just be online all year, you'd have to have massive amounts of businesses who are willing to um, work, rework their business plans so people could, their employers, employees could be at home to work with kids. Yes, and they, some of them have done that and it has been to their advantage because they don't have to spend as much on, you know, physical plants and supplies and things like that. But also, when, when I was working in the schools, I worked on the west side, uh, the northwest quadrant of Salt Lake City, and so many of those kids do not have access to a computer or the internet. How are you gonna deliver uh, teaching in that sort of environment? And I read, you know, because I have been following the Salt Lake City guidelines in the paper, that they were talking about setting up tents where they would have internet connections and people could come, but that's not a feasible solution for everyone. So that's one consideration there. And we certainly wouldn't be able to do that in the winter. Mm -hmm. 
So um, it's gonna it's gonna be very difficult. And also, the schools are mandated to deliver special education services to children, no matter what, including the pandemic. That does not suspend the responsibility to say, you know, deliver education to children who have intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, and learning disabilities you know, deaf-blind services, all of that. And they have to figure out how to do that as well. So it's, it's, it's just, it's like a Medusa with a Hydra with many different strands. So many things have to be done. And I really believe that once they open the school, it's going to be a day-to-day -day process of judging what's working and what isn't. You know, I was reading about that Christian school in the South that opened for one day until, you know, a number of kids got coronavirus and then they closed. So reading the Salt Lake plans, I guess, if there are three students who test, or a teacher who tests positive in a classroom, that class will be quarantined for two weeks. If the entire school, if there are 15 people who test positive for coronavirus, the entire school will be quarantined for two weeks. How is that going to work with people's work schedules and with not interrupting student instruction when the schools are open for two weeks, closed for two weeks, you know. It, it just boggles the mind. I think it's going to be a moment-to-moment -moment decision. I don't think we can really predict much of anything at this point. Well, everyone, after that, you might be thinking cognitive dissonance. Okay, now I know what's behind some of our back-to-school issues. But where's the encouragement in that? Well, Janice Pompa puts all of this into perspective and gives you the coping techniques you need in episode five of GrammyCast. So be sure to listen to that. And in the meantime, be healthy and be hopeful. Now I can't stop the video. How do we stop the video?